Atlanta has a really unique history of being a self-promoter and really pushing itself as a city. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. Happy Olympic year. Happy Olympic year. I feel like a little deja vu. <laughs> I know. I realized we get to say happy Olympic year three years in a row. I know. And isn't it weird saying it in an odd numbered year? It is. Doesn't it feel wrong? It, it does, except for the fact that this year is the 125th anniversary of 1896. Athens. Yes. So that's kind of really exciting to go with it. So that they can celebrate whatever that anniversary is called. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I don't know those weird numbers. And I'm feeling about 125 right now. <laughs> I'm with you too. I'm with Ooh, you too. It's been a it's been a long 2021 already. <laughs> That's crazy. And oh my gosh, you take a couple weeks off to rest up for the holidays, and like kaboom. everything, ha- yeah, kaboom, kind of like this. Like seriously, <laughs> we've got doping I, news. <laughs> I, I, I think Jill's gotten some new sound effects for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I did. Great. Our patrons are so nice to make new sound effects happen for us. <laughs> Thank you. So yes, there was some some interesting doping news. Yes. So the the deal is that the Court of Arbitration for Sport laid down its decision on Rusada's appeal of the WADA decision. So let's that's a lot of acronyms. So Court of Arbitration for Sport is CAS. Last year, it took them a year to make this decision. Last year, December 2019, the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA, uh, cited the Russian anti-doping agency, Rusada, for violating a whole bunch of codes and basically doctoring samples, all the stuff that was going on in their Moscow laboratory that has led to many decisions being overturned in terms of metals, and it was systemic doping and covering up kind of things. So WADA had laid down a pretty harsh punishment for them. And Rusada, of course, appealed. And the CAS came back with their decision, which basically cut the initial punishment in half. So while the Russians have to face similar sanctions to what happened right before Pyeongchang, remember that? That's one of our early episodes. We talked all about them being banned. So they are banned from the Olympics and Paralympics and World Champs and FIFA World Cup for two years. The original decision was four years. That got halved to two. So they can't get any accreditations, can't be on boards or committees or sub, uh, subcommittees. They can't participate in the Olympics, Paralympics, World Champs, World Cup. They can't host anything in terms of those same organizations. Uh, if things have already been awarded, events have been awarded, such as a World Championships, they have to withdraw from hosting, so they'll lose those events. The Russian flag may not be flown 
uh, displayed in, in any venues for the Olympics and Paralympics and World Champs. And Russian athletes will have to participate under a neutral flag if they are deemed clean. So similarly to what happened in Pyeongchang, where they had uh, Olympic athletes from Russia. Correct. They'll have neutral athletes from Russia on their uniforms, and they'll probably march under the Olympic or Paralympic flag again. And then they can't wear their uniforms, but the uniform that they can have as a neutral athlete can have the Russian flag colors on it. And it can say neutral athlete from Russia as long as Russia is smaller than neutral athlete print-wise. I know. Oh, now we're getting into fonts. Oh, my goodness. That's about as nerdy as you can get. I know, and you know how much I like fun with fonts. I know. (laughs) And then... What I thought was so interesting about this was that both sides were claiming victory. Right, because Rusada got a break, and WADA still got some sanctions in there. And still got two Olympics. Yes. That seemed to be what they were very concerned about, that they would be sanctioned for both Tokyo and Beijing. Right, because the systemic doping wasn't just a summer sport thing. It's summer and winter sports as well that have been affected by this. It's fair that it covers both summer and winter sports and, and it's speaking of winter sports with russia right so he, you know they you want to think that oh maybe this slap slap on the wrist is going to shape put him whip him into shape you know along with all the the money that they've got to pay they've got to pay a whole bunch of fines to cover costs and legal expenses and uh provide support for the cases that are still being investigated from this but and this is fun. Inside the Games was reporting that there was a biathlon event in Russia at the end of December. And it's going to be investigated because a whole bunch of athletes withdrew from the event when the doping control officer showed up. A whole bunch of Russian athletes. Yes. So, yeah, 33 competitors dropped out of this competition when the doping control officer showed up. So what does that make you think? It makes me feel really bad for the person who has the job that we spoke about, the one who has to carry the tray of samples. (laughs) Oh, man. So we shall see. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that while the athletes and competitors and the country can't have the flag there spectators will still be able to bring the flag into venues so it's going to be like a repeat of pyeongchang uh, remember the hockey match when they won the gold medal and everybody and just started singing and started singing the russian anthem and this crosses with all the many many discussions we've had about rule 50 and podium protests and let's do a little reference to movie club and gold. And is there going to be some Russian athlete with his Russian flag stuffed in his jacket (gasps) who whips it out on the podium? (gasps) Trust me. I did not just give somebody ideas. They already had that idea. Oh, I know, but I didn't have that idea. So now I know what to look for. I mean, there's no way that that's not going to happen. Right. Because the Russian athletes before Pyeongchang were many, many, many of them were expressing how angry they were about not being able to compete under their flag. Oh, yeah. So then you've got this confluence of controversies coming in, and this could get very, very interesting. Very quickly, which also makes sense that the IOC statement 
about the decision was about uh, five lines long and said not much of anything that they will carefully evaluate it because they were also so quick to reinstate Russia. Right. After the ban. After Rio. No, after, like, oh, and, yeah. and the Pyeongchang thing. Remember when and they then, banned them just like right away? Oh, well, yeah. they're they're clean. So, you know, this is not the IOC's uh, favorite area of sport, having to deal with no. something very messy. No. Well, you know what would be really messy? What? If that guy dropped the tray of samples. <laughs> I, st- I can't get that story out of my head. Oh, man. Well, that's a fun way to start off 2021. <laughs> Told you. 2021 already not great. <laughs> so also happening in 2021 uh, quite soon will be our book club. We're meeting with Book Club Claire later this month and talking about the book World Class by Peggy Shin, which is about the U.S. women's cross-country ski team and is an opportunity for both uh, Allison and I to blow a gasket several times while reading. I have been warned. I have not started, but on Facebook, some people have warned me that I will get upset. Yeah, and I so started I have... and I have gotten upset. So. But we know it does have a happy ending, so that's, that's true. That's going to get us through. That's We're going true. to power through this race. That's true. And if you've also seen on our social feeds and uh, Facebook group, the women's cross-country ski team doing really well lately. They are just killing it this That's season, good. which is fantastic. So get your copy of the book through bookshop.org slash shop slash Flame Alive pod, which will give us a little commission to support the show. If you've been catching up on the show, A, thank you. B, you might notice that our Pyeongchang daily wrap-up episodes are no longer on your favorite podcast app. They are exclusively on Patreon for our bronze level and above patrons. And you can find out more about how to become a patron at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. New music means new feature. That's right. Our guest today is helping us kick off our year of looking back at Atlanta 1996. Sarah Dilla is an exhibition curator at the Atlanta History Center, and she's curated the museum's new exhibit on the Atlanta Games called Atlanta 96, Shaping an Olympic and Paralympic City. We talked with Sarah about the exhibit, how the games got to Atlanta, and how they affected the city, and we had to have some Izzy talk, too. Take a listen. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This is a new exhibit at the Atlanta History Center, replacing what you had for the Olympics, correct? Yes. So uh, we just opened this new exhibit. It's called Atlanta 96, Shaping an Olympic and Paralympic City. Uh, And we opened to the public on September 18th. So it was the 30th anniversary of the day that Atlanta was selected to host uh, the 1996 Games. So that was a, a moment with a lot of uh, local memories and nostalgia for people who were here. And it gave us a good commemoration anniversary in this this year full of pandemic. So we are open uh, and it is a, a new permanent exhibition. We call it kind of in the museum world. That doesn't mean that it will last forever, but <laughs> it, it means it'll last for, uh, you know, between 10 and 20 years uh, until it becomes in need of updating with with the history or the design or the technology or all these things. Um, So it it will be open for a long time for visitors uh, to see. Uh, And 
We are in the process of launching a new website for the Atlanta History Center, which will have a bit of a, a, an expanded portal for our Olympic and Paralympic collections and history and information about this exhibit. So that will give an opportunity for uh, virtual visitors to get a bit more of, of what we have. But the Atlanta History Center does have a long history with this history. We uh, were designated as the repository for the collections of the Georgia Amateur Athletic Foundation after the Games ended in 1997 and the organization dissolved. So the Georgia Amateur Athletic Foundation is this nonprofit arm that, that was the basis for the bid committee and then, of course, the games committee. And so getting their collections means we have a ton of stuff. It is professional records that kind of talk about the process of putting on a bid and games. Um, it is videos and photos, of course, all in many of which are still in 1996 era formats, <laughs> like 35 millimeter film and VHS and Betamax. But it's also objects from the games themselves. So that includes uh, things like signage uh, for putting on a games in the city. It, it includes things from the offices of the bid and games committee. It includes sports equipment. And it's been added to over the years so that we kind of expand beyond the constraints of, of just that foundation's gift. Uh, and we have uh, gifts from individuals in the community or athletes that were part of the games. We have a, a, an Olympic history portion of that collection, which includes uh, a gift of medals and torches from different games. And it, we have been actively kind of increasing our Paralympic history with, with donations and purchases too. So that's kind of the the long and short of it, of why we why we are doing this with that collection, the History Center has has held multiple exhibitions in the past on the Olympic topic, and and this is our our latest. It, it, what always amazes me is that a, a lot of big things happen in the world because somebody gets a bee in their bonnet to do it. And that's kind of what happened with Billy Payne and getting Atlanta to host the games. So how did he come up with this idea and how did he convince everyone that it would be good? Yeah, no, the, the bid story of, of the 1996 games is perhaps my favorite. I'm not sure. Maybe if you had, if we started talking about any topic about it, I would probably call it my favorite. So I'll just, <laughs> I, I'm biased. But I think the bid story is really interesting because it has so many, so many tentacles out to the history of Atlanta, the long history of the city of Atlanta, and also a global history of this network of Olympic cities uh, and who became an Olympic city or who wanted to be an Olympic city. And to kind of, you know, Atlanta has this this great kind of underdog um, and, and dream-like story around the bid that, you know, it was... We have these two main players, Billy Payne and Andy Young. Uh, Billy Payne, uh, an area businessman, of course, uh, known for having this, this initial idea to bring the Olympics to his city. And Andy Young, of course, 
known um, as a civil rights leader in the Carter administration and and then the mayor of Atlanta. Um, But those are our two key players uh, for the initiation of this big bid story, right? Um, But as a history museum, I always, you know, speaking from that role, I want to make sure we kind of dig in more and we see what, what the big context of this was to see why would, you know, why would somebody want to bid for the games and why would a city want to do this and how would they be convinced to do this and so I think Billy and Andy's story really really connects out to some of those longer stories and if you look at the time period that this is happening they're they're beginning these discussions for Atlanta in the late 80s about 1987 And this is a moment when the world had recently had the games in L.A., 1984 in L.A., and they were the first ones to be a big, profitable success uh, in a long time. And and that really changed the landscape for the bid. And that's something that Atlanta then rode on. And I always like think about all the games that came before. Right. And so in this in the late 60s to 70s, My memory mnemonic is the M cities. You have Mexico City, um, you have Munich, uh, you have Montreal and Moscow, all of which had varying levels of challenges or tragedies. uh, And and that was financial as well as um, terrorism uh, and social unrest. Uh, And so all of these things became kind of what people noticed about the games and what cities kind of thought that they might get into if they uh, signed up for this job. And and so it became very unpopular to think about bidding for the games until L.A. did it in 84 and they switched the model and they took it on as a majority privately funded endeavor. uh, And they used a lot of their already existing venues and stadiums. Uh, And so they ended up making money and kind of showing how this could be done in a different way. Uh, And so Atlanta's idea is riding the coattails of this. And Billy and Andy uh, latch on to that at a time when federal aid to cities in the U.S. is decreasing in the 1980s. So Andy Young as the mayor can see this opportunity as a way to get Atlanta's name out there, to potentially make some money for the city through national or international recognition and what comes from that. And putting it also in the context of Atlanta's history, Atlanta has a really unique history of being a self-promoter and really pushing itself as a city Um, from the late 1800s city leaders in Atlanta were really focused on getting the city's name out there. And and they wanted the city to become bigger and better and wealthier on the national scale. And so this this resulted in a series of promotional endeavors. And Atlanta was one of the first cities in the U.S. to have an actual marketing campaign for its city. And it was called Forward Atlanta. And they sent out ads in, in papers 
to attract cities to come and and be and, and establish a headquarters uh, or or use kind of rail lines through Atlanta. So there are all these kind of chamber of commerce efforts to develop Atlanta in the early 20th century. That marketing campaign was reprised again in the 60s and In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Atlanta really pushed to have a lot of big venues and attract sporting sporting industry. Uh, And we got the Braves uh, and, you know, a series of other venues. And by by 87, the city was working on the Georgia Dome. Uh, And so that was kind of part of these early discussions, too, that that Atlanta could benefit from this. But it, it also is a thing that Atlanta would do. Uh, This city has been known for self-promotion and kind of attracting these big ideas that can help boost the city's image. So there are all these kind of tentacles out from Billy and Andy's early idea that, that make it make sense for the city and then also connect to that longer story of of how the Olympics are growing and how cities are thinking of them in in the late 20th century. So the population of Atlanta seemed to really get behind this. You know, I remember seeing the videos of, you know, that week leading up to the selection, and there were just crowds of people trying to convince the IOC that Atlanta was the city. So, and now we see almost the opposite happening all the time. So what was happening just with your ordinary Joe Atlanta <laughs> making the decision to really support this? Yeah, that, and I think that relates to this story of boosterism and, and kind of this history of boosterism in Atlanta, right? That taking on this idea to begin with was something that could help push the city from that oh, we've, we feel like we've established ourselves as a national city, but now we want to become an international city. Uh, and that's something that city leadership got behind. And they effectively worked this kind of push for self-promotion, both externally to kind of see with what this bid could do for the image of Atlanta globally, uh, but also like a, a flipped self-promotion, uh, which becomes civic pride. Uh, and so... The push for the games first, you know, this process of the bid is is two steps, right? And so they first uh, convinced the USOC to be the representative from North America in the in the international or from the US in the international competition, and then you know then you're competing with the big leagues uh, on with the IOC on the international stage. And Atlanta had a really organized campaign that had a bunch of different approaches to one pitch themselves as a very organized and and ready for this city, but also uh, looking at the actual population of, of Atlanta and what they could do to get people interested in this. So in campaigning with IOC for for this final selection, there's a big story of technology. Uh, Atlanta really harnessed the the bid team harnessed um, new technology of how uh, how Atlanta would look in 1996 if they were hosting uh, hosting the Olympics. So they did this very elaborate 3D animation that was based on um, helicopter imaging of the city combined with 
3D models and a bunch of like images overlaid on it. Uh, and so the, the IOC was actually able to themselves use a little trackpad and fly around the city of Atlanta to see what it would look like in 1996. And, and this hits with some of the themes that come up in our exhibit about history of technology and that this bid and these games were happening in a big time for digital history. It was, it was kind of the birth of the commercial internet at that time and all of these new graphics capabilities were coming to the mainstream. So that's a funny little story that I like to tell about, about how, you know, how their pitch was successful. But they're also kind of the people stories about it uh, and the themes that they pushed. And and that is, you know, Atlanta really pushed the Southern Hospitality team and they hosted big tours for IOC representatives uh, and got the general public involved in that. And they toured the King Center uh, and they toured all kinds of sites across the city to show the history of Atlanta and to push the civil rights history of Atlanta. And they also got the general public involved through uh, a bunch of merchandise that we still have and see on a lot of people, T-shirts and signs and water bottles and, and all kinds of things with the very popular bid logo, which was five A's in a star. And they got people really excited on the ground level. Um, and there's some discussions in press from that time about why there aren't more critics of Atlanta's bid locally. And I think it has to do with a few factors. One, I, I think it does have to do with this underdog status, right? That maybe some people weren't quite convinced it was going to happen yet. And so you see a lot of protests in, in other bid cities, and especially more today, but you did for this 1996 campaign as well of, of the general public not being quite up for this idea of this big event coming to their city and all of the expenditures that it would take on. Um, and there were some of these in Atlanta, but they certainly weren't as widespread uh, as we see in, in other cities uh, and as they were in, in competing cities at the time. Atlanta was, was in that final group with Toronto, Melbourne, Belgrade, Manchester, and Athens. Of course, Athens is kind of the sentimental rival here. But you see much more established kind of protests or pushback from the general public happening in cities like Toronto or Melbourne than, than you do in Atlanta, which is an interesting aspect. So they definitely harnessed this, this kind of flipped version of self-promotion, which is getting Atlanta's name out there to the world during this competition and then the games, of course, but also really generating a lot of civic pride. How different is that model of the city from what actually happened? And then, and, and then how has the city changed since that model? That is a good question. So it, it's this uh, it's this very old interactive video. Uh, and so basically it's it's um, extruded blocks on a on a green ground <laughs> that that you can that you can kind of squint and, and think is, oh, there's a stadium and, and there's a big building. Um, so it's in terms of the technology, it is certainly um, you you will mark it to its era <laughs> and it, will, it is no longer cutting edge but it is 
an illustration of the proposal in their bid book. And so Atlanta had a big five volume bid book or application uh, that spelled out their plans for uh, how they would host the games. And one of those volumes include included proposed venues and what would go where and how they would accommodate all the events uh, and the sports and the media and, and the visitors. And the bid book, as, as in other cities, uh, the plan in the bid book stayed pretty, pretty similar to the plan that actually happened. And, and I believe that's, um, that's pressure from the IOC as well, that this is, this is often um, something that we want you to want to make it hard for you to change. So we, we can make sure that <laughs> we can make sure that you're ready. And so they they proposed a lot of uh, events happening in the general areas and and sometimes the same locations that they actually did happen in that that really localized on what is called the Olympic ring in Atlanta. So that was a three mile wide circle centering on downtown, uh, which is where. Uh, a bunch of existing venues were reused, the Georgia World Congress Center, the what was then the Omni Coliseum, which is where State Farm Arena is now, and then including some college campuses, Georgia Tech, Atlanta University Center, colleges and universities, and then outside of that ring, areas like Stone Mountain. And so these were all things that were that were designated in the bid book. Uh, and that did end up being used. And, and of course, sports and, and individual things moved around here and there, and there were, there were local controversies around that um, when, we, when you dig into each venue story. Um, but it, it was pretty much designated at the time of the bid book. It's, it's so interesting. I, can, <laughs> I, I know this didn't happen, but can't you see Juan Antonio Samaranch being so excited by the technology (laughs) look at what we can do (laughs) it is a great we have photos of this big booth that they set up of course every uh every bid city set up uh, a booth in tokyo at the congress where the announcement was made uh and this booth was was if you can imagine you know a trade show today and anything to kind of pitch your city in this final push uh and so atlanta's booth was really focused on this this technology experience. And it was three big screens that gave you this immersive view of the city. And then there was a table in the middle of it that had a little Lucite model of the city that that was kind of the trackpad that you could say, hey, I want to go to that box and, and that box. And then on the screen would pop up this view of what the what the main stadium would look like or what uh, or what the um, volleyball arena would look like. The booth probably had to be huge because the computer to run this. <laughs> the computer on itself <laughs> would have been enormous. You know, you mentioned Athens, and certainly at the time this was the Centennial Games, and Athens yes. was the um, nostalgic favorite. And Atlanta, being this sort of young upstart city, was unexpected in many ways to end up winning. So I always think about that. That was the bid committee very aware of Athens kind of having this natural advantage? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great question. And I, I 
we dive into this one a lot and and I kind of probably end up overthinking it. But if you look at the candidacies of all of these competing cities at the time, and certainly going into this, everyone knew that Athens was the favored one and that Athens committee um, itself had a lot of ownership over this date uh, and wanting to wanting to secure this date for themselves. And so the changing landscapes of each city's candidacy are really interesting. And I do think they fluctuate over the time that they were all preparing their bids. And so Atlanta certainly entered as an underdog entering this race. Uh, and everyone was convinced it was a long shot and they weren't going to get it. <laughs> and we have, you know, funny quotes from people writing op-eds in the local newspaper about how much of a long shot it is. But in the end, city leadership and big businesses here, history, capital, um, and, and having this technology arm uh, and being able to accommodate things. There were large venues in existence in Atlanta, certainly not as many in L- as in L.A. or other cities like that. But we solidified ourselves in all of these different facets of the candidacy, right? And so as the, the late 80s to the Congress, to the, to the year of the selection, we're moving along, you see the, the kind of the chances and the, and the outside influences in the other cities change as well. Toronto um, had this very established protest movement. Manchester was kind of seen as, as not having enough established facilities and maybe having an image that's more industrial. Um, and Melbourne could have always has this this time zone issue that they have to the hurdle they have to jump right and and you get to Athens and Belgrade and I'll put them in kind of one lump because they have related historical tensions going on and and this is the late 80s in the in the the run up to uh, the Yugoslav wars Belgrade has a lot of kind of burgeoning tensions um, and and that relates um, to Athens because they are close by uh, and there are um, Balkan Peninsula nations that are kind of all in in conversation here. So there are tensions and there are international concerns that affect both of those as candidates. So I think as the as the picture became clearer, as it became closer to this this vote, there are so many other. Uh, things influencing the candidacies that that potentially, as it came to the time, Atlanta was the strongest contender. So uh, at, at the time of the vote, I do think they kind of they kind of were able to go to Tokyo with with some confidence. But it was, of course, still a nail biter for those involved. <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking of the alternate universe where Belgrade would have been awarded those games. Yeah, it, it's just mind-boggling. And in 1996, just coming out of, of the close of those wars, um, you see you see those tensions still playing out with Yugoslavia and Croatia on in the arenas in Atlanta. So it is, is an interesting kind of speculative history, right, to play out. But I do think one of the IOC members, I remember a quote after the selection was made, 
um, said that that Atlanta, you know, this is my badly paraphrased, Atlanta was the forward-looking choice and Athens was the, the historical choice, right? So if this is the mark of the of the, the century, the first century of the modern Olympic Games, then Athens as a choice would have been about the past century. And uh, he made the argument that Atlanta was about the, the next century. Looking back, because it's about 25 years, what's the, what's the real legacy of the Games? How has it changed the city? Yeah, I, that's a question uh, we get all the time. And uh, our, it's part of our exhibit and kind of redoing this exhibit at the History Center was um, because now the story is so different for the city than it was, you know, immediately after the Games. Immediately after the Games, we could look at, at them with a lot more rosy colored glasses, right? You see this, this wonderful moment that the city had and all of the personal memories of those involved, uh, the athletes, all the achievements. And so it's, it's a much more kind of nostalgic moment. But now we're, you know, nearing that 25-year mark. And, and I think it, it means, something, uh, means something more, but it's also a bit more solidified in that longer history of the city, right? And you see how uh, how it made so much sense in the type of thing that Atlanta does throughout its history. Uh, Atlanta does these big self-promotion type events and big pushes for for name recognition and for investment. Uh, and so that's, it's very much a thing that Atlanta does. But in terms of legacy, I think that's always this big kind of capital L word in in the Olympic community, right? But it did change the face of the city. And I think that's the thing that is perhaps the most recognizable, maybe not at first because they're, you know, not signs on everything as much anymore, um, but but there are still some. Um, but it's about how the city that that we live in here is different because of that big project. And the games were a big push for change in the city and investment and big kind of preparations on a very short timeline, right? We have six years to get ready for all of this, which means a lot of physical change uh, and a lot of resources coming in to do that physical change. And, and a big part of Atlanta's story has to do with the financial plans for that, coming off of those heels of, of games like L.A. and Barcelona, where there was a lot of profit and this positive story around kind of privatizing the, the efforts more. Atlanta planned their games through a public-private partnership, so meaning that it's the, the organization uh, the organizing committee for the games as this kind of private arm and different committees from the city, state, and some federal influence to kind of help make this all happen. And so that group together and that kind of foundational plan is really shows up in in what's left in Atlanta today because it's, uh, you know, it's about these different visions for how they wanted to plan for for the games in Atlanta. And you have uh, Maynard Jackson, uh, mayor at the time, who um, who famously called it scaling the Twin Peaks of 
Mount Olympus. And so his Twin Peaks were one, planning the games to have the best games ever, and the organizing committee would stage these best games ever. But two, that second peak was um, fighting poverty in Atlanta. And so his ideas for this public-private partnership for the games coming to Atlanta was to change the face of the city, one, to be able to host this big sporting event, but two, to have a better city, not necessarily just a richer city, but a better city and kind of tackle some of the longstanding um, disparities in, in the community. And this, of course, is a, you know, this is a pie in the sky dream. And, and it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen. The Olympics are not, are not the arm that's able to kind of end poverty in cities. Um, and, you know, big, fast projects like this often create, you know, longer term issues in those, in those areas. And so we see that in, in the legacy in Atlanta. We see a city that is changed to have new venues or adapted venues for big events. Um, but we also see a city that has legacies of a uh, series of urban improvement projects and urban renewal initiatives kind of layered one on top of each other. Uh, and so some of those initiatives that kind of ran off of that initial idea that Maynard had were things like changing um, public housing in line with national housing reform initiatives um, and getting rid of public housing. And so we see these efforts all in the 1996 landscape. We see what was actually pretty successful in terms of very functional venues. So venues that were built with ideas of reuse in mind so that we don't have a lot of white elephants on the landscape. And we see these kind of changes around the city that happened at the time to to make the city what the people involved thought the world would want. Interesting. Okay, so we have to ask this because it's it's a a lightning rod among us and our listeners. What do you think of Izzy? <laughs> this is maybe the most divisive legacy of the Atlanta Games. <laughs> In all of his blue glory. Um, see, I personally, I'm, I'm all for Izzy. I'm a big, I'm pro Izzy. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I've got, I've reasoned this out. <laughs> so Izzy to me is, you know, and this is, this is fully just my brainchild. Uh, this is not. This is not historically documented, <laughs> but I do believe that Izzy is, a, is an interesting marker of change in mascots. So if you look at a lot of the mascots in Olympic history before Izzy, they were, they were known characters. So they were a human <laughs> or a dog or a beaver. You know, there were these known, uh, known beings. Uh, and then came Izzy, who is not a known being. <laughs> you might ask, what is it? <laughs> but mascots today are are much more of that uh kind of of that type of entity you know you have the mascots in london who are totally crazy mand mandible and and wenlock, <laughs> and, wenful, yeah. and, wenlock yes. uh, and you know you have and you also have multiples 
So I think it is kind of an interesting marker of of that a mascot can be wacky <laughs> and, and doesn't have to be a thing. <laughs> uh, I also think it, it is interesting in in kind of the standard mascots of Atlanta's Atlanta sports teams and in Atlanta history. Uh, we have a, a city who often picks things like Phoenix or or something about kind of rising from the flames that often becomes a bird. Uh, we have the Falcons, the Hawks. So it is totally strange, but I, I'm often a fan of, of strange decisions. And I was also 10 uh, in 1996. Yeah, there you go. So I was like the prime age for Izzy Love. That seems to be the continuing factor. Anyone who was a child for Atlanta loves yes. Izzy, and anyone who was an adult just is like, what in the world what is it? <laughs> and I will say one last thing about Izzy is that. They do also relate to the history of technology story that Izzy was uh, produced with the idea that the character uh, was able to morph into all of these different athlete type poses and, and, you know, become a basketball or become something else. And so the idea was very much a computer generated animation driven idea and and that relates to some of the larger stories in in Atlanta's games. Excellent. Thank you so much Sarah who is our newest citizen of Shukflastan. You can find out more about the exhibit at atlantahistorycenter.com and follow them on social on Twitter they are ATL Hist Center and on Insta and Facebook they are Atlanta History Center and you can follow Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Dilla and Sarah's with an H and Dilla is not. We will have links to all of that in the show notes. I would love to be able to travel and see this exhibit. I know they have to keep it there until we can get there. She did say it's it's designed to be there for years, but looking at how things are going with the pandemic here in America, it might take years to get there. We could probably walk. By the time we get to see it, the technology that they use for the interactive portions will be as dated as that technology that they used for the bid to show the <laughs> the city to the IOC I members. I love watching some of the old videos from oh, the right. bid and they had these monstrous computers with the big buttons <laughs> it's like watching the old star trek episodes where like they're flipping switches i know and in every one of those i just picture little juan antonio samaranch being so oh. impressed like oh i press a button this is how computers work he was not i would expect the most technical no he's of... like so old school you know, yes, in everything, you know, just in his demeanor and his presentation, he had a secretary who had to go and, you know, take shorthand. Right. I and mean, print everything no out. Yeah. Typing his own emails for Juan Antonio. <laughs> so if you get a chance to see the exhibit, let us know what you think. We are hoping to get there at some point during the year. So we'll do Atlanta stuff. All year long, we, we will probably do fun facts or something in every show. And I know on Twitter, I've got something going on every day. You'll get a little fun fact. Interesting tidbits. I've already unearthed some. Music moments. They're quite fun. Should we show pictures of what we looked like in 1996? I don't know. Maybe. I'm not sure my hair would fit in a frame. <laughs> 
So it is time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive, and see what our past guests are up to. So let's take a little trip. Welcome to Shukflastan, the only place you're allowed to go. (laughs) We never close our borders. Our biathlete, Claire Egan, has met the criteria to qualify for the uh, Beijing 2022 Games. She's gotten two top 12 finishes this season, which that's what the qualification is. And it doesn't guarantee her a spot on the team because there are up to two places on the team for the U.S. And they'll decide who those people are by the end of the season in March. So congratulations. She's having a pretty good year so far. She just can't retire. I know. That's good. I'll take that. I know. So, and she's starting the next trimesters in the biathlon world. So the next one starts up this weekend. Are they in Oberhof? They are in Oberhof. Our skeleton athlete turns Bob Sledder, AJ Edelman, was featured in the New York Times recently. A nice feature about... It's not a great topic because it was uh, about bobsleds and concussions, but it also talks about him putting together the Israeli bobsled team and the trials they've had to go through and the toughness. And he's been training over in Korea. So it was a really nice feature. We will have a link to that in the show notes. And this, this news. Yeah, speed skater Aaron Jackson had an unfortunate run-in with a bungee cord causing a serious eye injury. Ouch. Yeah, after two trips to the emergency room in about 16 hours... They found it wasn't, uh, it was serious, but not debilitating. Well, that's good. So she's got to wear an eye patch and a shield, and she'll only miss about a week of training. And there should be no permanent damage to her vision. That is a relief. And I think we need to get Erin Jackson a butler. She was carrying packages. Oh. She was trying to strap things down with the bungee cord. Oh, and it snapped back and shot. And it snapped back (gasps) and smacked her in the face. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that is rough. Well, Aaron. (laughs) So U.S. speed skating, get this girl a butler. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, speedy recovery, Aaron. We uh, hope you get back on the track soon. All right. Let's go take a look at what's going on in Tokyo. Less than 200 days. That scares me. It does scare me. It scares me because of COVID. Yeah, I mean, because they're having a little surge in Japan right now. So Japan has closed its borders. This is one of those situations where, you know, they're taking it very seriously. But when I think of surge and I look at the numbers of cases and, and deaths in the United States, and then I look at Japan and think, wow. Our definition of surges are very, very different, but uh, still no decision on what's happening. They're, they're still saying the games will go on, and but, but nothing beyond who else will get to go to Tokyo. On the coronavirus uh, vein, Dick Pound went rogue. Love that when that happens. <laughs> and Dick Pound said, or Inside the Games reported that Dick Pound said athletes should get priority for the COVID-19 vaccine so that that was the most realistic way to ensure that the Olympic and Paralympic Games would take place. Now, I am very unaware of what's happening in other countries and even other states because mm-hmm. I know everybody's priorities are very different mm-hmm. in terms of how they're, they're going to get through. 
So I would think by July, at least in the United States, they or let's say by June, they could do that. But I don't know if that's true of other countries. Right. I mean, the the interesting thing is how much vaccine will be available and how long it takes to roll up. But Dick Pound wants his vaccine. I mean, he would be he would get a vaccine. He's old. Right. But he said like he said in Canada, we might have three or four hundred athletes. So if you take three or four hundred vaccines out of several million, that's no big deal. It's a drop in the bucket. Right. But what about in other countries? I know when you have other countries, especially poorer countries who are way far down the line and getting vaccine. I, I was reading. I think this was also an inside the games that Kenya is planning to take 100 athletes. Where are they in the vaccine? Pool. Right. Or even a, a country like India, I know, is having trouble prioritizing right. mm-hmm. and not because they're sending so many athletes, but just because they're, they have such a huge population. A lot of population is rural. How do you get the. Yeah, I think once again, we have this problem of North America, Western Europe forgetting. And you would think Dick Pound, who's been in the IOC for so long, mm-hmm. could manage this. <laughs> well. Oh, jeez. <laughs> All I know is that I am not getting a vaccine for a long time. And not because I don't want it, but because I am so I am so unimportant. You and me both. Also from Tokyo, because they, just there's a lot of news about Tokyo, of course. They have picked a new director for the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies. They're going to scale them back, they said. They're going to scale them back, but they also increased the budgets. I think that new budget is going to have to do with COVID. Right, right. I don't think they're going to make more expensive things. No, I don't think so either. I think it's going to be more expensive to put on. Right. Uh, The uh, Mainichi was reporting that this is the second time they will have raised the budget for the opening and closing ceremonies. They increased it last February, so pretty much right before the pandemic really broke out because the initial estimate was not going to be big enough. So now they're increasing it again because they have to have COVID measures. They've got a new director to have a simpler and more restrained opening and closing ceremonies, which will be interesting to see because, you know, we talked before with the whole village restrictions that they've put into place, who's going to get to go and what are they going to have? So it's it's going to be a different opening ceremonies than I think we're used to. You can't have 200 kids dancing around with streamers. No, no. So Or the drum. Oh, they can't have the drummers unless they're six feet apart. They might be. I don't know. They might be able to do so. I don't know. But on the other hand, this may just bring everything down a notch, which would be good because the opening ceremonies have really become ridiculous. They have. And I think part of it is due to the fact that you had two hosts recently who did not care what they were spending. Right. And we never will know how much Sochi spent on those games. Those were pretty lavish. And, of course, Beijing... That was also incredibly lavish. Who knows what they're planning for Beijing 2022. We shall see. Yeah. But yeah, simpler, more restrained. That should be a better tone to set for these games, which will be very different. Like we've talked before, it's going to be interesting to look at this game 20, 30 years down the, down the road. Was it a turning point? Yeah. The organizing committee has also trained 220 IT security experts 
or they call them white hat hackers, to protect the game from cyber criminals, also reported in the Mainichi. So that's interesting because we also have recently, a few months ago, listener Anthony had mentioned the Wired article about the the Pyeongchang games where the opening ceremonies almost didn't happen because there was a, a cyber attack right before them. And it's good that Tokyo is taking this seriously and uh, working to prevent that right now. We don't need a computer virus on top of a regular virus. Right. The organizing committee also unveiled its new budget at the end of December. <laughs> I know. Oh, boy. I did not know this many zeros existed. Well, they do. And the official cost has increased by 22%, and they will cost $15.4 billion to stage right now. And this is up from $12.6 billion in last year's budget, which is a lot of zeros to add on. Yeah. But good thing, all 68 of the domestic sponsors extended their contracts. So that should give... About $210 million or 22 billion yen to back to the bottom line. So. These numbers are just so big. I can't. I know. I we kind of throw them around. Right. We're just like, oh, yes, I'll get another $210 million. How do we even function in these numbers? I don't know. Like, I love that we're going to do a simpler opening ceremonies. And I hope going forward, that's really going to mean that these numbers start dropping. To We love the Olympics. We love the pomp and circumstance. I do not love it $15.4 billion worth. I would have to agree with you on that. There's got to be mean, something. We, Why is something? Can we get it to a to $1 billion? I mean, imagine what we could do with that other $14 billion. I know. And, and this like, is how the whole no Olympics people are like, because you can do a lot of good with that money. There's no reason why these should be $15 billion, even with the security, even with the COVID. So... You know, everybody pretty much treats brides like an ATM. Yes. They, it's your it big a... day, and you will spend whatever it takes. And my guess is that everybody looks at the Olympics the same way. You are a big ATM. You want the biggest games. It's the one big event you'll never host it again, likely. you got to showcase the city, biggest, best of everything, and you shouldn't care about costs. So you got to wonder if there's a little markup for that. I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe one of these days, maybe we'll be able to take a big look into the budget. But I can't even get my brain to function at $15.4 My brain doesn't go up that high. You know why? Because our podcast budget is in the hundreds. <laughs> and is that's like that the high? low 100s. <laughs> <laughs> that's numbers I can get my mind around. I mean, it's just, it's so, as much as I love the Olympics, it's wrong. It's just... Mm -hmm. It's wrong, and we need to fix it somehow. Yeah. I mean, that is that is a whole side conversation. That's a whole other podcast. That's right. How we fix the Olympics. Mm. Mm. How do we fix the Olympics? Let us know. All of those host towns, remember we've talked before about towns throughout the country hosting different groups of athletes coming in so that they can train before the games? Now they're all very curious and wondering how they're going to function with COVID-19. So Inside the Games has reported that uh, these host towns have uh, expressed concern over the pandemic and 
they feel like they're kind of in limbo now with what do they do? Do they welcome these teams? Are they going to be expected to deal with uh, COVID-19 situations? How do we get ready for this? What's going on? So there's more than 500 municipalities across Japan who are dealing with this situation. So going to be very curious to see what happens with that because it's such a great sounding program too. I think they're just going to have to scrap it. But I mean, and then, just but for that, everybody's safe, for the safety of the, the, the Japanese citizenry, you can't have all these international guests just spread all across the country. Yeah, but then how do you get people acclimated? Because that's part of the deal. They don't yeah. have time to get acclimated then, and they're not going to be allowed into the village for very long. So it's not like you can hop on a plane, fly 15 hours, and expect to be okay in a couple of days. Well, Japan is an archipelago. Don't they have like some, <laughs> some island? Un- unpopulated islands that they could throw a tent on? Bring your tent. Yeah, just throw all the athletes <laughs> on the island. These islands Survivor <laughs> Olympic edition. <laughs> this island is great for the sport climbers because there's lots of cliffs and rocks on it. And the surfers will be happy. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, we got you. The sailors you can transport people in and out, the rowers. Mm-hmm. Bring your own food. Tra- Bring your own Beach water. Training. Yeah. <laughs> we got just like airplane drops. <laughs> All right, we got that figured out. And they got fifteen billion dollars. <laughs> they can do an airplane drop. That will add another billion onto the cost. <laughs> <laughs> it's an Olympic airplane. <laughs> and then when you look up, it's just gonna be one of those <laughs> really old aeroflot or something. But with rings painted on it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay, and then the Paralympic refunds are done, and uh, Tokyo reported that 21% of people applied for domestic refunds for the Paralympics compared to 18% for the Olympics. So, still pretty low. Still pretty low. People still want to go to the games in Japan. So, we will see what happens next with that. And what's the deal with Italy here? What's going so, on? The Italian Olympic Committee have gotten themselves in trouble. It has to do with the management of Kony. Which is their National Olympic Committee. Correct. I'm not going to try and say the Italian version, (laughs) but it's, yeah. When you get your citizenship, you'll be able to say it. (laughs) It's true. It's true. It's no Comitee Olimpica. So similar to the situation that happened with India several years ago, Mm. where it's not that there's no doping issue. It has to do with management. And their flag and anthem could be banned in Tokyo, which would be very embarrassing considering they're a host country for that the following Olympic Games after Beijing. That would be bad. Yes. Mm-hmm. Kony President Giovanni Malago has said we need to fix this because this would just be absolutely humiliating. And it would. Or it, yeah. So again, it's it's governance and corruption. Oh man, oh man. Fifteen oh, man. billion dollars. Let's go and see what's going on with Beijing twenty twenty two. So Beijing updated its website and released the pictograms for the sports. They are inspired by traditional Chinese seal engraving. So they are very brush stroke-like. There's two versions. There's white 
pictograms on a red background and red pictograms on a white background. And I don't know about you, but when I looked at them, I went, huh, these look a little like 2008. Why? Because 2008 pictograms were also based on traditional Chinese seal engraving. <laughs> I don't know why they instantly, because when you put them side by side, they're, they do they are very different. But And I know not an expert on Chinese seal engraving, but I could see the relationship. But they, they do move. look like the... You can make a connection to the logo of the games with them. So they are one for each sport, but the freestyle and snowboard disciplines each got their own. So it's sports and events this time Hmm. because they have different equipment and courses for all of those different freestyle and snowboarding events. All right. And I think that's going to catch us up. I kind of need a nap now. I know. It's been a busy, how many days are we even a week in? And this is, this is difficult. Yeah. Well, hopefully it gets better. We are not, we are clearly need to start some serious training. We do. Oh my goodness. You're right. We are, we are not Olympic year ready. No, I'm going to have to channel my inner Lou Jones. Strap some batteries to my body. That's right. Start running. So I think we're going to get our training schedules worked out now and we'll call it a show. Let us know your favorite memories from Atlanta 1996. Email us at pod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we will have Ness Murby back to start our conversation about para-athletics and specifically what visually impaired para-athletes have to go through. As we go out to music by Archdale, happy new year, happy Olympic year. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. strange, but I'm often a fan of, of strange decisions.